Hello and welcome to The Dirt. Thank you for joining. My name is Brian Powell and I am your host. On this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, particularly related to North Carolina issues of the environment and environmental justice. We are broadcasting today from the studio of historic WSHA-FM in Raleigh, North Carolina. You can listen to us live on 88.9 FM. If you're in Rocky Mount, tune in to 102.1 and in Fayetteville on 102.3 FM. As always, you can stream the show online at WSHAFM.org, and you can check out The Dirt on SoundCloud to download older episodes and this episode later in the day today. We are also on Twitter at The Dirt FM. So folks, I am excited for the show that we have for you today. We only do this once a month, and it's just for an hour, so I try to pack a lot into it for you. I think we've got some great stories to share with you today. As usual, we will have a panel in the studio to discuss what's happening with the legislature here in Raleigh. Uh, When we last broadcast, they were a few days from wrapping up session, and we weren't expecting that we would see a part-time legislature back in the Capitol for uh, quite a while, but they are coming back. Uh, And we're going to try to figure out what's on the agenda for lawmakers and discuss bills that are still sitting on the governor's desk and what's going to happen with them. Um, First, however... Uh, we're going to talk to, with a very special guest. You know, it's late July. If you're lucky, uh, you're a member of the U.S. Congress, and you've spent the last few months slacking off at of your job just to prepare yourself for taking a huge vacation for all of August. For the rest of us, we are trying to figure out how we might spend a day uh, or a weekend here or there while school's out or while the weather's good, um, if we can scrounge up the money and find some vacation days uh, to spend our time and get our recreation on. So one option folks have is to make a visit to a national park or one of the many beautiful North Carolina state parks. Uh, Our national park system passed the 100-year mark in 2016, Uh, so a lot of attention was paid to how many people were visiting the parks, where they visited from, Um, and the numbers over the years indicate that for a large part of America, national parks are not the destination of choice. Uh, Visitors to the park system are overwhelmingly white and they skew older, Uh, There are a number of reasons for this lack of diversity and access, and we're going to touch on some of them. So I want to welcome a former deputy director of the National Park Service, Milton Fern, to the show. Mr. Fern, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, I want to jump straight into this uh, access and diversity question with this kind of question. Who are our parks for? And I ask that because for many people, um, I think listening, the answer seems obvious, Parks get taxpayer money, uh, so they're for everyone. Um, in fact, not everyone is going. So uh, depending on the year, as I mentioned, between 75 and 80% of visitors to our national parks are white and most of them older. Uh, I'm interested in, uh, based on your experience at the National Park Service, why is it that people of color are so vastly underrepresented in our national park system? Uh, so let me say, uh, first of all, parks are the ultimate democratic space. And uh, they're more so in America than anywhere else. Uh, a lot of places throughout the world, uh, parks are private or they were the playgrounds of royalty and that kind of thing. In the United States, from local to national parks, parks are the ultimate democratic space. And what that means is when you come there, uh, you are who you are. You don't have to be. You don't have to be wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Hispanic. It, the park is there for you. Um, and as you said earlier, the visitors to the national uh, uh, parks. Well, and we have to make a distinction. Be, there are only 59 national parks. So there are 59 national parks, but there are 417 uh, uh, elements of the National Park Service. Uh, if you look at the visitation of the urban units in the Northeast and Southeast and uh, in the National Capital District, uh, you see a lot of people going to those things. Those are, part, those are units to tell the history of civil rights and those kinds of things. So you get a lot of people going there. National Mall and Malls places in D.C. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. The, the, the problem is with the 59 real, real national parks. So the National Park Service uh, workforce, the operational workforce, is, is 90% white. Its seasonal workforce is 90% white, and its visitors are 90% white. And that has something to do um, with a kind of closed system. If you have people 
who are all the same making decisions, then what they do is they create programs and services that serve them. And then they will invite people to assimilate into those programs and services, uh, but they won't necessarily examine uh, why they don't seem to be inclined to come. So I guess a short story, um, my wife and I lived in Oakland, California for eight years, and Yosemite was only four hours away. And uh, people would consistently ask us, have you been to Yosemite? You know, have you been? Have you been? And we actually never went. I never went to Yosemite until I was deputy director of the National Park Service. When you look at why we didn't go, um, every choice you make with your discretionary time is based on something called a calculation of return on investment. Through the amount of money, time, energy I have, what's the most I'm going to get out of that experience? Well, if my wife and I have a choice on Saturday to drive to Yosemite or go to a Luther Vandross concert, there's no question. <laughs> there's no question which one is going to give us greater return on investment, especially since we haven't been to Yosemite, right? So uh, when I was deputy director of the National Park Service, they made me go. <laughs> they, they made me go to Yosemite, and I'm standing on Glacier Point where Teddy Roosevelt and uh, John Muir stood looking down the valley at Half Dome and El Capitan, and I, I cried. I literally looked at it and cried for a couple of reasons. One, how did I get to be deputy director of this? <laughs> and the other was because it was just so unbelievably beautiful. It was early spring and the 29 waterfalls and Half Dome and El Capitan, and it's at that point that I can calculate return on investment. So I, I immediately send pictures to my wife, and she says, oh, my God. And I send pictures to my daughter, and she says, you don't have no real job. That ain't a real job. Go <laughs> to Yosemite. That ain't a real job. But at that point, now I can make a more accurate calculation of return on investment. So when you look at the things that go into African-American people calculating return on investment, those things are almost always based in urban kinds of activities, activities in which the satisfaction is immediate. Uh, I would say activities that don't cost much, but, uh, but a Beyonce concert costs quite a bit, and, and a pair of Nikes cost quite a bit. So the reality is that uh, there is money, but people aren't just deciding that they want to spend their time and money on that kind of activity. So our challenge is to provide experiences so that more people can make a more accurate calculation of return on investment. Is it just a matter of uh, you can't get there uh, and there's no transportation apparatus for people to get from the cities out into the middle of nowhere uh, or is it or is it something beyond that? Yeah. Well I think that's true for 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 uh, people in the lower socioeconomic strata uh, but but my wife and I have plenty of money we just didn't want to go. <laughs> it's just, and that's, that's what people can't believe. I'm just not interested. You know, I'm kind of. So I, I'm interested, before we get into a little deeper on that, why it is, um, in your estimation, that, um, that diversity um, and exposure to national parks is important in the first place. Well, I think it's not necessarily just national parks. I think that... Um, nature has real softening influences. I spent my first experience as a ranger was out in the middle of 15,000 acres of redwood trees. And I learned more about me and life in the middle of those redwood trees than almost any other single experience I've had. I've learned, I, I sort of learned how systems work because the whole thing is a system. It's really interesting in a redwood forest. It's a real kind of metaphor for society. Uh, as redwood trees grow and they're so huge, uh, they suck up all the resources from, from every other thing, so nothing else in the redwood forest can grow very tall. Well, when you look at that in terms of wealth in America and that kind of stuff, you can, you can, you can basically see the same thing. I just think that every human being needs to be exposed to nature-softening influences. Uh, they uh, just the awe of nature. They need to understand what nature does, that we can't live without it. So that's why it's important. It's not like any other recreation activity. People say, if you got free time, you should be able to do what you want to do. I believe that about tennis and golf. I believe that about those kind of activities. I don't believe that about nature. I think everybody needs to get exposed to nature. So there's been a, a very public push um, from a lot of nonprofit groups and, and other groups uh, to publicly um, emphasize increasing diversity and access to the national park system uh, around the centennial. And I'm 
I'm wondering, based on your experience, um, how long those conversations have been going on, whether they were going on when, when you were there, you left shortly before the centennial, um, and what those conversations were like. Well, I had this first conversation in 1970 when I graduated from college. 1970? Right? 1970. I graduated from college at Cal State Sacramento, and the director of the National Parks, uh, California State Parks asked me to do a, a survey about why, at that point in time, blacks and Hispanics did not go to state and national parks. So the conversation's been going on that long. Uh, when, I when I went to the National Park Service, my interview with the Secretary of Interior, he asked me, he said, so, so what are you going to do to get more black people camping and hiking? So the, the conversation's been going on for a long time. Uh, people haven't come up with really good solutions. Um, and then, so uh, I was trying to explain to people is they're not going because they don't like it. And that, so when I was there, they were trying to bring people closer to national parks or national parks closer to people in some way. And I explained to them, you know, this is like my son eating broccoli. He hated broccoli and it didn't matter if you put the broccoli close to him or put him close to the broccoli, he wasn't eating the broccoli. <laughs> and so what we have to realize is what are the conditions that are creating the situation where people aren't attracted to it. So uh, what are your solutions? Uh, do you have, are there any solutions that have begun to work? Are there any solutions that have worked at, at a state or local level? Um, what do you think might be a more effective approach? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we just started something here three years ago called Neighborhood Ecology Corps. Um, North Carolina State uh, gave the, the seed money of $25,000. We have partners. We have uh, North Carolina State Parks. We have Raleigh Parks and Recreation, we have National Park Service, and we have a nonprofit organization that actually does the work. And what we, we got 20 young people and decided we'd make them ecologists in their neighborhood. So we paid them $500 for the year to do ecology work in their neighborhood, because what we found out is getting them exposed to nature in a place that's familiar to them is more effective than trying to get them exposed to a place that might be a little bit scary. So we started work in their neighborhood, and. Uh, North Carolina State Parks invited North Carolina State Parks and they did what they do better than anybody else in the world, which is host, take care of people and do great interpretation. Uh, they went to Cape Lookout, uh, they're going to Great Smokies, but they're having these experiences, but the experiences are very well thought out. They are designed to give them a gradual um, a sort of um, education about what's going on so that they begin to build skills and confidence and they get comfortable. And it's not just a, it's not just a one off. We're going to take no, a field trip to the mountains no. for the weekend and then come back. Yeah, the problem um, with that is they everybody used to do what's called play dates, where you invite them up for the weekend, or um, or work crews, where you come and build a bridge or you remove some invasives and those kinds of things. But it's not enough time to really get to understand. Now, if you can imagine, if you go to nature and you don't know anything about it then at its best, it's just pretty. But if you go to nature and you know something about it, then you begin to understand the relationship of trees to trails and the whole thing becomes much more animated by virtue of your intimacy with it, but they never, never, never gave them enough opportunity to develop that intimacy. So, you know, we, we talk a little bit about um, the kind of getting access for uh, African-Americans to national parks, and you mentioned that um, Hispanic communities have historically maybe not been uh, appropriately represented in visitation. What are the distinctions um, between those communities and, and indigenous communities? Um, is there, Obviously, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach um, to increasing diversities in, in, in the parks. So I, I'm wondering what some of the other approaches might be or problems well, or obstacles. Uh, the problem has been, and society does this in a lot of different ways, uh, the homogenization of diversity that we call everybody a minority group, and therefore there are solutions for minority groups. And most of those solutions have to do with those groups assimilating into the system that already exists. Uh, African Americans don't go uh, because of something called biophobia, which is fear of nature, which is morphed into indifference. Native Americans don't go because of a resentment of, of you know, th this was our home. Now, all of a sudden, they've made this a wilderness, and I can't even go in and gather food that I used to gather and those kinds of things. Hispanics, by virtue of their relationship with agriculture, are much more comfortable when they go. In 1970, Hispanics didn't go because it was migrant work and they were working all the time. But now that you begin to get a Hispanic middle class, y y you find people going. 
uh, their issue is uh, their issues when they go they go with huge families and every campsite in America or every state park campsite is set up for four people and they'll go with like 16 people and it creates interesting user conflicts but the problem is that we haven't looked at these individual cultures relative to their relationship with nature we have decided that they're all minority groups so that there is one solution do you think that there has been any progress in the evolution of the approach um, well there there are a lot of people doing work there there's uh, uh, outdoor afro that's on the west coast there's the uh, the hispanic outdoors there are a lot of people doing a lot of work now and so i think we're beginning to see a blip but the reality is that you have to start really really early the young people in the neighborhood ecology corps are in the sixth seventh and eighth grade and uh, so you have to start because you want to break that biophobia and want you want to see them over time the thing about the people in neighborhood ecology corps they they are scientists now and the other problem that north carolina state has we couldn't get students enrolled in the college of natural resources because they didn't have the ability to do that but once we started to do that i think we're starting to see a change but we have to make sure it's in their neighborhoods and we have to make sure that we stay with them it can't be a one-off situation quickly now they they track some of these diversity statistics at the national level i, I believe by a series of surveys mm -hmm. um, do you know if there's any similar effort at the state level uh, for state parks i don't think north carolina state parks uh, oregon does some okay but uh, the reality is that oregon state parks has one black ranger Washington State Parks has one black ranger, and North Carolina State Parks, Parks has, has one black ranger. So wow. we've got to do something with that, too. What is your favorite national park? Well, you have to look at it two different ways. There are parks that create a sense of affiliation, and there are parks that create a sense of awe. For awe, Yosemite, clearly, is just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, you cannot not feel the spirit of God when you're there. For affiliation, there's a place in South Carolina called Sullivan's Island that is a, that actually Ellis Island for black people. So 50% of slaves that came in through America came in through Sullivan's Island. And when my wife and I went there, you're going to get the sense that I cry easy, easily. I cried again. <laughs> just because just thinking of all 50% of slaves that came into the country came in through there. So for okay. affiliation, is Sullivan's Island. Wonderful. Um, unfortunately, we have to head to a break. So I know we could talk about this for hours upon hours, but we've got to end it there for now. I want you to stay tuned for our next segment. We will be joined by Dr. Doug Novacek. He's a marine ecologist and expert in bioacoustics to discuss the dangers of oil exploration techniques on marine mammals and other ocean life. So we will be back in just a couple minutes. Welcome back. Let's dive into this segment with a focus on oceans. Many listeners may have heard the news late last week that Governor Cooper came out publicly against any and all oil drilling and exploration off the Carolina coast. Uh, this included opposition to seismic testing, which is the first step towards a full-blown drilling operation. Uh, there are many reasons that this public opposition is a good thing. Drilling, as many of you know, threatens thousands of jobs dependent on a clean ocean, uh, from fishing to craft breweries to communities tied to coastal tourism. Uh, it's also a huge win for marine wildlife. So joining us today to talk about that is Dr. Doug Novacek, one of the nation's leading experts on marine conservation technology. He is from Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment. Dr. Novacek has studied marine ecology and bioacoustics for over 20 years, and he's authored countless peer-reviewed papers on the impacts of seismic surveys. He has testified before the U.S. House of Representatives about the impacts of seismic activity on whales and other ocean life. I'm very excited to have him on the phone right now. Dr. Novacek, thank you for talking to us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So when most people think of the dangers offshore drilling poses to fish, marine mammals, other wildlife, I think the first thing that they're probably thinking of is kind of the, the idea of an oil spill. You know, we see the images of Deepwater Horizon, Exxon Valdez, uh, numerous other right. oil spills that happen with actually surprising frequency. Um, right. And it's, it's marine ecosystems. Um, you know, people, people are thinking of animals covered with oil, but marine ecosystems are they're in danger well before uh, the construction of a rig ever even takes place. Um, and that has to do with seismic 
blasting. Uh, what is that? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, and it does start quite a bit before uh, any of the other exploration or any other protect production and development activity, for sure. Uh, basically, what uh, it is, it's a replacement for dynamite, uh, which was used many years ago. Uh, the idea that is that these air guns release a, uh, a, a small bubble of highly compressed air, and it basically explodes. I mean, it's a series of controlled explosions, um, to be quite, quite frank and quite honest about it. That's, that's what they want to create. The, that creates a very intense sound wave that travels down through the water, uh, down in through the rock and other substrate, and it bounces around uh, in in and around the rock and 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 potentially oil and or gas uh, or water for that matter. There's lots of different structure down there. With the sound bouncing around in there, then it bounces back out again eventually and up back through the water column, and then they have hundreds of little hydrophones, little underwater microphones that are towed back behind the boat, and it receives all that acoustic energy, that sound energy that's traveled down through the water. And from uh, all that refraction and reflection and bouncing around, they get a pretty good picture of what's going on um, underneath the surface, uh, underneath the substrate. That's... So when this goes on, the, the air guns, they, they use them in an array, uh, usually 20, 30, sometimes as many as 40 air guns, depends on how they configure it. And they, they set off the, the guns about once every 10 seconds. Uh, and the surveys will go for uh, days, weeks, even months uh, on end. So you're talking about fairly powerful explosions taking place, very loud, clearly, explosions yep. taking place uh, under the surface of the ocean once every 10 seconds for how many yep. months? Well, it depends. The, the The current situation with the with the IHAs, but we'll get to the harassment authorization, they're, they're contemplating uh, permitting five different companies uh, in in large measure to to acquire seismic in the same over the same areas, and those permits are good for a year. The, the surveys typically go for say a month. Just depends on on the size of the area that they're that they're surveying. Um, and it is it it is quite loud. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's it's the loudest single sound that we that humans put into the ocean. I'm trying to imagine. You know, I get really angry when my alarm clock is going off once every eight minutes, and I keep hitting yeah. snooze. Uh, You know, I'm trying to imagine what it must be like for, you know, explosions to be taking place all around me every 10 seconds for a month straight uh, or months at a time. Um, What what effect does this have on on wildlife? Yeah, the the um, the chances of of a large animal like a big fish or a, a dolphin or a whale or something dying immediately is very, very small. Um, they would have to be very, very close to the array, and that, that, just, that just doesn't happen. Um, the, we, we worry really about a couple of main things. And with those, the, the um, air guns going off so frequently, it not only is it the time of the, of the pulse, and the pulse itself is not very long. It's just a couple hundred milliseconds. But the time in between the pulse when all that sound is bouncing around, it raises the background level of noise which is just like being at a, at a party or, you know, someplace where the actual background level of noise is, is <clears throat> increased and it makes it hard for them to communicate. So we worry about them, their ability to communicate, especially things like North Atlantic right whales, which come off the coast of, of North Carolina back and forth as they go to their calving grounds uh, down off Georgia and Florida. And so that means young, young calves and their mothers. And if they get separated, then, uh, then that, that kid's not going to make it. So we worry about masking of communication. Uh, the other big thing we worry about um, is is stress. Believe it or not, people kind of kind of chuckle at that and think, "Oh, well, whales get stressed." We actually made some measurements around the time of of September 11th, um, when global shipping shut down for a couple of days, and we made some measurements of right whales in up in the Bay of Fundy, and the noise level had gone down substantially, and so did the stress hormone levels in their in their in their feces. We went out and, and were collecting collecting samples, and the stress hormone levels went down. So That's fascinating. Chronic stress is a bad thing for mammals. So mammals, they're getting stressed. Um, what, I know there are effects on kind of the broader ecosystem, yeah. um, including a recent study about plankton and the effects that seismic testing has on that, which is kind of the building block for the entire marine ecosystem, right? Tell me sure. about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was a, a recent study, as you said, it was in, in Nature just a couple of weeks ago uh, by a group uh, of folks, a very good group of folks down in, in Australia, and they made measurements um, using a different kind of acoustic system as well as nets to look at what happens after they 
uh, brought a set of air guns, a relatively small set of air guns, through, through an area. And they found the abundance of zooplankton. So zooplankton are, are um, just small animals that, that, as you say, make up the absolutely the, the basis of the food chain. They go around and they eat the phytoplankton that we all hear so much about that are um, you know, marine plants that are out there creating oxygen for all of us and, and, and photosynthesizing. So the zooplankton go around and eat them, and then the zooplankton are eaten by everything from very tiny fish all the way up to whales. And so they are an absolutely critical piece of, of the ecosystem. And in this study in Australia, what they found was the abundance went down, which one could explain by the zooplankton just leaving the area. But they also towed nets through the area and found that after the seismic, the mortality rate of the zooplankton, there's a natural mortality rate, maybe it's 10 15%. It increased by two to three hundred percent. Wow! Um, so instead of ten or fifteen percent, we're talking about uh, thirty to fifty percent of the zooplankton were actually killed during uh, during the survey. We don't understand the mechanism, and it's really important for us to actually go out and figure out what that mechanism is, uh, because there are some alternative technologies out there that 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 maybe would cause less less of that mortality. Well, that was going to be my next. In fact, I have two questions. One, before we get into that, have there been any studies um, or measurements done on kind of the, the higher levels of marine life and whether whether that degradation um, of the of the plankton and the, has had an effect on their survival rates or prevalence? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And, and that would be that's the, the $64,000 question or whatever amount we're at now. Um, we're just really learning about the the impacts on plankton. So so making the the connection to the upper trophic levels is 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 tricky. We do there's quite a few studies out there on fish, and some individual fish don't show a whole lot of response to to air guns, but in other cases uh, they show pretty dramatic um, impacts. We had a study just off the coast here during a research uh, seismic survey, which if we have time to get to, we can talk about. But uh, the use of of a local reef. Um, by the fish basically went to zero um, after the after the survey. We don't have any measurements from days afterwards to see when they recolonated, which they presumably did. But they the fish were certainly impacted by by the survey and took off from the from the reef. So we sur- we do worry about immediate impacts on fish, just uh, causing them to leave areas, leave fishing areas. There's several documented studies of reduced fishing catch uh, in the in the wake of of seismic surveys. I was going to ask if these are commercially important uh, species of fish. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, possible alternatives to uh, the seismic blasting testing that's currently being done. I'm very interested in hearing what those might be and, and how practical uh, they would be to implement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing just before I got there, another important thing about the this the technology or the tool, which is all the, the seismic air guns are, is really just a tool, is when the companies get the, the data um, from their potential reservoirs, they need they use the data, they use seismic or whatever technology repeatedly throughout the production of those wells. So it's not just a one-time thing either. As they set up a, a, a rig or production facility, they'll want to shoot seismic again every three to five years to track how the reservoir is moving. So for the alternative technologies point, point of view, it's all the more important that we explore these now, um, if we're going to go out there and do this and, and you know, need those fuels, that we start with an alternative technology now, because then we can use the same uh, less impactful technology uh, throughout the life of the field. And there, just briefly, there are things. There's one called marine vibrosize, which basically is a unit that sits at the surface and just basically vibrates and hums, and it uh, produces a much more focused um, set of sound frequencies problem with the blast from the, 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 the shot from the gun is that it produces a lot of different frequencies, so it covers the sounds that are used by a lot of different animals. Um, there's a electromagnetic, um, which we don't know a whole lot about the impacts of that, but it's, it can be very, very accurate in terms of mapping out um, things like uh, gas and, and water. Um, there's actually some completely passive ones that use changes in the gravitational fields, believe it or not, with mm-hmm. highly precise measurements of the changes in gravitational fields, which, as I understand it, I'm not I'm not a geophysical expert um, by any means, but that that um, gravity-based one, for example, could very well be uh, a solid replacement for the two-dimensional seismic that's being proposed right now. That sounds 
extremely fascinating. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll absolutely be uh, looking into learning more about that one. Um, I, on the on the political side of this, Governor yeah. Cooper, um, you know, he made some statements last week. It included some strong language um, about seismic. Uh, yeah. The Department of Environmental Quality submitted official comments outlining, I think, some of the dangers of the practice um, yeah. during a during a comment period that just ended uh, yeah. last week. Um, strong words, but in practice, what can the governor, can the administration do to prevent seismic um, from appearing on our coast? Right, right. There's th- there's three main triggers. Uh, the what they submitted comments on last week were what are a proposed set of incidental harassment authorizations. So under the Marine Mammal Protection Act that protects all marine mammals, there's a clause that says if your activity is going to incidentally harass animals. We need, to, we need to look at it to make sure that it's not going to cause detrimental harm. It's not going to cause more than a negligible impact is the language in the act. And these are, you know, this is just the way that we believe mammals should be protected, marine mammals should be protected. And, and there is some concern. In fact, there's been a bill introduced to, to change the language in the act and, and absolve these companies of, of applying for these permits altogether, which, you know, that's a decision as a general public we have to make. But right now, the way the act stands, they have to apply for these incidental harassment authorizations. And that's the comment period that ended last week. Um, The other trigger is there's another comment period open right now from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM. They are requesting information for their five-year planning cycle for oil and gas leasing. And so the governor and his administration can certainly comment on that and talk about how North Carolina is not interested in, uh, you know, according to the governor, is not interested in, in having that activity. The other, and a part of that trigger is the Coastal Zone Management Act, which folks know is the CZMA. And in, in that act, the federal government has to consult with the states that are affected by some federal activity offshore of the state. And the state has to say whether those activities or plans are consistent with its coastal zone management plan. And if they're not, then, then the, the, that sets up a, a tension between the states and the feds. And, and I don't actually know, uh, you know what the possible outcomes are from that if it's determined to be inconsistent. It is interesting to think, too, about the, all of the towns and municipalities up and down the coast of North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, Florida, that have all come out in opposition to offshore oil and gas. Huge and local opposition, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, there's over 100 communities um, and towns, counties, uh, there are over a hundred, I think a hundred U S representatives from up and down the East coast who wrote a letter to the, to secretary Zinke voicing their opposition based on their constituencies and almost 40 senators as well. That's have written a letter. That's incredible. And hopefully it makes yeah. a difference. Um, yeah. I real quickly, you know, I hear this yeah. sometimes people say, well, you know, you're opposed to seismic blasting for oil. Um, but they have to do seismic testing in order to set up offshore wind farms. And uh, I'm wondering, do you know what the difference is between seismic blasting as used for oil exploration and the kind of seismic tests used before the construction of of an offshore wind platform? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start with, they're using the same technology, but there's two major, major differences. One is that the the seismic used for siting wind farms is much, much lower energy. It's much quieter because they only want to go a few tens of meters below the surface to make sure that when they drive those wind piles that they don't hit any oil or they don't hit any gas, any shallow gas hazards, as they're called. Um, so it's, it's much less uh, loud, uh, for starters. Secondly, it's only done one time. They do it to locate the, those shallow gas hazards, and once they've mapped those out, they're done. There's no more seismic that ever that ever happens. On the oil and gas side, uh, the reality is that they need to go and can go very deep into the substrate, um, kilometers, thousands of meters into the substrate, and so they need a more powerful signal and more powerful sound. And again, they will. It has to be repeated if an area is developed. So very quickly, um, you mentioned a research seismic survey that was done um, mm-hmm. in about 30 seconds. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So the National Science Foundation. Uh, sponsored a uh, survey that was done off the coast of North Carolina to look at the, the structure of, of our coast. What happens if there's a big slough off of sand? What happens in a big storm? So it's the same technology that 
that is used for, for oil and gas, for sure, and it is, it's a fairly sizable array in this case. But they basically did three or four stripes along the coast compared to the thousands of trackline miles that are proposed um, for the offshore oil and gas survey. It's like 150,000 kilometers of trackline, whereas the NSF survey was a few hundred miles. Oh, wow. Um, and what did we learn? Um, I don't know. I haven't seen the results of that, actually. Okay. Um, the, the folks that conducted it from Columbia are our colleagues, and, and they were they were great to we we um, uh, coordinated to put those instruments out to see what happened with those with those fish uh, the the fish activity on the reef. Well, we'll be looking for those results then um, sometime in the future. Uh, right now, yep. we've got to head to a break. So I want to thank you okay. very much for joining us today. This has been extremely informative. Um, My pleasure. I think, I think listeners got a lot out of it. So yeah, that sounds great. Put them in touch with me if they if they have questions. I'll absolutely do that. Thank you. Sounds good. We'll All be right, right back. Take care. Hey, you are listening to The Dirt with Brian Powell. This is the final segment of the show today. We're going to be talking about some of the latest environmental news out of the state legislature. The legislative session wrapped up a few days after our last show, uh, but not before uh, our part-time legislature scheduled a few more sessions. Um, They're going to be convening again pretty quickly next week. In fact, a new session is expected to gavel in on August 3rd. Uh, So I want to welcome a panel in to talk about that and other things. Uh, with us today, we have Katie Todd, Director of Digital Strategies with the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters, Grady McCauley, Policy Director at North Carolina Conservation Network, and Matthew Starr, your Upper News Riverkeeper. Thank you all for being here. So uh, when we were last on the air, the long session was just a couple of days from wrapping up. Uh, one of the big issues that we've talked about on, on the past couple of shows was a bill called H-576, the aerosolization of leachate bill, famously known as the garbage juice bill. Um, Matthew, what's the latest on the garbage juice bill? Where does it stand right now? Yeah, so we've talked about this bill a number of times uh, throughout the process. The most recent news is that Governor Cooper has vetoed this bill, meaning the General Assembly passed a bill. They sent it over to the governor to either be vetoed or signed into law. And Thank goodness for the environment and for communities around these landfills he vetoed. Oh, okay. So, okay, we're done with that. No, we not, not quite. No? <laughs> okay. Nope, nope, nope. Um, not so fast, my friend, as, as you would say. Um, so now it goes back to the legislature, and they will have the opportunity to what's called a veto override, meaning they can vote and basically nullify the governor's veto. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be working really hard. Um, We've we've done press, we're we're sending out action alerts. Um, Check your local Riverkeeper or your local environmental group's Facebook page. Um, Reach out to your local um, member, both your senator and your your House of Representatives member and tell them to vote to sustain the governor's veto. We, we don't want this bill. Right. And just real quick, um, we don't want it. Let's recap for listeners why we don't want it. What, what is bad about this bill? Yeah. So you, uh, you did a nice intro and it is the garbage juice bill. Um, when you have a landfill, what collects at the bottom of a landfill is called landfill leachate. It's, it's garbage juice. It's the rain that, that filters down. It's the, the, water and substances is just a it's a mixture of just really nasty things that collect at the bottom of the landfill as you can imagine and so what this bill would do is remove the permitting process for this and allow for one type of technology to be to be used at these landfills and what it would essentially do is take the collection of this garbage juice and shoot it through a high-powered fan and the inventor of this technology and the legislative members pushing this contend that then that removes all of the pollutants from from what would what would then be dissipated into the air and we know that these pollutants won't fall out because only a certain size particle falls out and then you you know the research shows that um, this can be spread for a mile at least around the landfill um, potentially affecting nearby communities. And more importantly, there doesn't seem to be any research indicating that it's a safe practice. 
there's there's no research that I've found or that's been brought forward that, that says that this technology is effective or safe. So people are understandably skeptical. Yes. And how likely do you think it is that um, a veto is overridden? Um, I think we got a shot. I'm, I'm more optimistic about this one than, than others, um, just for the simple fact that there is no science, there is no vetting process by our Department of Environmental Quality, and it seems to be um, just a, a, a really bad bill. And so I, I think that we've got a, a greater than normal shot of, of, of getting <laughs> the veto sustained. That's not saying much, but that's what <laughs> yeah. optimism looks like in this day and age. Um, let's move on to another big development legislatively since our last show that is h589 it is a a massive energy bill this thing is a beast um katie some say that this is going to allow solar to thrive in north carolina um some say it's a giveaway to duke energy i think one thing that's abundantly clear to everyone uh, is that this bill is uh, the arch enemy of wind power in north carolina um what's the story yeah, so House Bill 589 was introduced as a pathway forward for North Carolina's solar industry. We really haven't seen kind of any major investment in that particular clean energy sector for a long time. Uh, yeah, this, this bill has its critics and its supporters. Um, there were some positives in terms of something called third-party financing. So right now, if you wanted to get solar energy, you'd be very limited in who could provide it to you. Allowing a third party, say like a solar company, to be able to kind of be the intermediary would make solar cheaper. Uh, you wouldn't have to pay the upfront investment costs, which can be thousands of dollars, and essentially you would lease your solar energy. So that's a positive, but as you alluded, Brian, like there are some potential very serious negatives. Uh, one was questions on kind of who gets to call the shots, and this bill seemed to give a lot of agency to Duke Energy, our state's largest utility. And then once it passed the House, it went over to the Senate and became a vehicle for this anti-wind agenda that we've seen come up again and again. So. It, after a compromise, which happens when uh, both chambers can't necessarily agree, they come up with one bill that supposedly suits everybody. It included an 18-month moratorium on wind energy projects. Uh, we recently saw North Carolina's first wind energy farm come uh, on the grid out in eastern North Carolina. It's been incredibly successful so far. We have two other projects already in the works that would have brought uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of economic investment, created jobs, and continue to help North Carolina, you know, get off all of our dirty energy sources. Unfortunately, this moratorium uh, puts those particular projects in jeopardy and future projects. So right now, this bill is sitting on Governor Cooper's desk. He's had conversations with representatives from the wind industry, the solar industry, and the environment. Ultimately, it's incredibly unfair that we are in a situation where we're having to choose between wind and solar. North Carolinians overwhelmingly support clean energy, period, and that includes both of these uh, forms of energy generation. Why is this wind provision even in this bill? <sighs> Who's behind this? <laughs> Well, uh, Senator Harry Brown has kind of created this false narrative that wind farms cannot uh, exist in places where there are military bases. The Department of Defense has signed off and is required to sign off on any projects that may interfere with military activities. There is absolutely no evidence that these, these two wind farms in, in uh, under uh, kind of in process, as well as kind of some of the other maps would interfere with national security or with the, again, ensuring that our troops would be prepared for what they need to do. Yeah, and, and furthermore, right, you know, these wind facilities are vetted by the Department of Defense. In fact, some of them have clauses in their contract to say, if this is interfering with anything that the military is doing, such as, as training exercise or aircraft maneuvers, you have to shut off your blades, which these wind farms agree to do. So agreeing, again, like you perfectly said, this is a false narrative. This is a problem that does not exist. And what do we think Governor Cooper is going to do? You know, I think Governor Cooper is going to do the best he can. Again, it's, it's a very 
unfair position for him to be in. Um, and I, you know, I think collectively those of us in this, the room and who kind of work on these issues know that uh, no matter what happens, whether he signs the bill, whether he lets it go into law without his signature or he overrides, we will continue to ensure that North Carolinians have access to solar, to wind, and other forms of uh, clean energy technologies. All right. Grady, I want to turn to you for a minute. I think one thing that we do expect lawmakers to take up in this next session is a series of possibly regulatory rollbacks um, that they kind of left on the table at the end of the last session. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about, you know, two or three of the worst cuts you're seeing or, or maybe just what these reforms, quote unquote, reforms look like. That's right. So over the last six years or so, we've seen this every session, some are worse than others, um, where when we talked about the, the aerosolization bill, that bill went through as an individual bill. So there was debate in committees, uh, both House and Senate committees about it. It's a terrible bill, but legislators got a chance to dig in and ask questions about it. Um, what we're talking about with these regulatory rollback bills are packages that have lots of different provisions in them, and they're moved fairly quickly, and often legislators don't have a lot of time to dig in to understand the implications of a particular provision. They're usually requested by special interests, and, uh, and there isn't a lot of time for the public or the media to understand what some of these provisions do. So there are four or five different regulatory rollback bills that are floating out there. Several of them are eligible when the session reconvenes next week. And a couple of the provisions that we're most concerned about, one of them is a provision that affects contested cases. That sounds like a fairly technical term, but what it means basically is it limits the ability of neighbors of proposed projects to challenge those projects if they get bad permits. The way this would work, for example, is say you're in your community and a company comes and wants to, to build something by you, a factory or something else that's going to emit toxic air pollutants. Um, the first time you may hear about that is if there's a public community meeting about the project partway through the public comment period on the on the permit that the company is seeking you may inspired by that meeting if you're free and go to it if that's a night that works for you and you hear about it you may choose to do some research about it and then when the permit comes out under current law when the permit comes out if you look at that and say you know what the agency didn't fix some real problems with this proposal you could get together with your neighbors hire a lawyer challenge that permit to get the problems fixed under this provision, if you didn't submit your comments and if somebody didn't raise the specific issues you might challenge the permit on later, your d the door would be closed to you. You would lose your opportunity. So this is one wow. we're really worried about because it really narrows, uh, it really narrows the remedies for people um, who live near projects that have inadequate permits. So that's one provision. Um, another provision that, that was in early versions of some of these rollback bills, and we're going to be watching closely to see what happens to it, all around, not, not in every basin of the state, but in several parts of the state, uh, we have state rules, in some cases local rules, that require the protection of what are called riparian buffers, which are undeveloped strips along our rivers. If, if they've already been cleared, these rules don't require people to go back in and do anything to them, but where there's natural forest along our rivers, uh, these rules tend to require that it not be just cut down. There are activities that can be done in them but they've got to be left mostly there. And they're really important for keeping pollution out of our waterways, keeping our waters drinkable, keeping them livable for fish, and protecting our, our fish resources and our estuaries. Um, this, one, of, one of these bills included this year a proposal to completely repeal the riparian buffer protections on the main stem of the Catawba Basin. Uh, it looks like that probably won't be in one of the final bills, but there are a series of other smaller proposals to weaken buffer protections under these different rules in different ways to create new exemptions for them. We don't think any of those exemptions are necessary. There's a lot of flexibility in the rules as it stands to let people clear vegetation, undergrowth, um, to provide for walking trails, hiking trails, and these are some of the the talking points that are being used for punching new holes in, in these protections. Quickly, Matthew, as a riverkeeper, um, mm -hmm. what, what does that mean for your work? Why? Why, in your estimation, are these efforts underway? So for, for buffers, you know, they are the, the front-line defense of, of water quality. Um, they provide many, many different things to regulating the temperature of the streams, to keeping pollutions out of the streams. So buffers are the cheapest, most effective way to keep pollution out of, us, out of our water before we have to start paying more to clean the water before we drink so it. So it's, it's a common sense solution yeah. to a problem. Any idea why somebody would be against 
buffers? Um, for the almighty dollar. Um, if you can clear a buffer, you can, in theory, charge more people to develop that land so you can have riverfront access or, or what have you, um, or just to have more developable land. Um, so it's, it's again, um, subverting what's, what's best for the citizens of North Carolina for the almighty dollar. Age-old problem. Um, I want to spend a minute to talk about a new legal effort that could have an impact on what the legislature attempts to do kind of from here on out. Um, some of you may remember that the U.S. Supreme Court recently upheld a lower court's ruling that North Carolina legislators illegally relied too heavily on race when redrawing state legislative districts in 2011. Uh, that decision is now in effect, I believe, and since new districts haven't been drawn yet, uh, some people are questioning whether legislative action since that decision took effect should, in fact, be binding. Um, Grady, tell me more about this. I'm, I'm hearing rumors uh, of, of people saying, well, man, we, we are, we're going to invalidate everything that the legislature has done. Everything they've done is just completely out of bounds, got to be redone, erase it all. You know, this is what's happening. Right. So fortunately, that's not going to happen. But I think it is important to note, so part of the reason this is so important, this is an issue that was raised in the Covington versus North Carolina case that, as you said, is about the, the use of racial gerrymandering to draw hyperpartisan districts. And I'll say on a practical level why this matters is when you look at, at issues in the General Assembly, when the, legislators voting, the legislature is voting on different issues, when the districts are so skewed, so gerrymandered, legislators aren't responsive to their constituents. That's a problem because it means that common sense solutions don't advance. Instead, um, special interest solutions can advance, and legislators just don't have to listen to their constituents on a lot of the things we care about. So um, a set of plaintiffs have, have brought this challenge, and as you mentioned, on June 30th, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed a lower court's opinion that the state had relied on racial gerrymandering and that the gerrymandering is unconstitutional. What's happened in the last week, at the end of the last week, and this ties into some of what we were just talking about, the Southern Environmental Law Center sent a letter to the governor, to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House saying, you know, the this U.S. Supreme Court has spoken on this. We know now, since that decision, that this legislature was unconstitutionally created by relying on these, these unconstitutional gerrymanders. And that means that it needs to fix that, and in the meantime, it doesn't have authority to, for actions after June 30th. It doesn't have authority to keep doing a variety of things, um, including specifically in the letters mentioned the potential to override the governor's veto of the aerosolization bill. So the letter basically says if the legislature were to override that, we don't think it has, it's not constitutional, and we don't think it has the authority to override the governor's veto of that bad bill. That's, that's important from an environmental perspective. It's also important looking forward um, because it means the legislature, if that's right, the legislature needs to get in there and draw some fair maps and have fair elections. Right, right. So more reason to be optimistic about the garbage juice bill, I guess. Um, all right, we're officially out of time. This has been The Dirt with Brian Powell. I want to thank our many guests for your contributions to today's program. Thank you to Conservation Network. And special thanks to WSHA's production staff, Nicole Giami, Jessica Graham, Derek Cooper. Please join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon on WSHA-FM. This program is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network and will rebroadcast this Saturday at 10 a.m.